What's up, podcast? Welcome back to another episode of Speech Analysis on the Public Speaker Podcast. Today's speech analysis is reviewing a talk from Allison Ledgerwood called How to Get Out of Negative Thinking at the TEDx UC Davis Conference. Um, I definitely enjoyed the speech. I think it had a lot of good elements to it. The number one thing I would take away is that if you are someone who's trying to communicate research that you've done in a certain field and uh, trying to get an audience to understand that research, this video uh, or this speech not only does a good uh, communication of visual aids, which you can watch the actual video on YouTube, but it does a really, really good job at separating and distinctifying the different research that they have done with the different variables and controls, and then creating a conclusion that has a positive correlation towards the message of the speech itself. So if you're someone who's in academia doing a lot of research and you want better tips on how to communicate it, I think this speech does a very good job at simplifying a complicated message and then showing the audience how they can take away a larger purpose from that message, which is the entire point of big data communication, right? Like the problem with STEM and big data and a lot, and a lot of companies in this day and age is that they have so much data, so much communication, so much information, but they don't know how to show it, how to present it, how to get an audience to believe in it. And the number one tip I would have is to make all that information as simple as possible, like a three-year-old can understand it, and then communicate the rest of it with a larger purpose so that the audience can latch onto it. So I enjoyed this podcast, or I enjoyed this speech analysis. I hope you are enjoying this podcast. <laughs> uh, but thank you guys for listening, and yeah, enjoy the talk. Bye. Hi, everyone. Gosh, I wish I could dance, but I can't, and you really don't want me to. So instead, I thought I would talk a little today about how people think. I'm fascinated by this question. I'm a social psychologist. Cool. So let's go over quickly that introduction. Um, starts off with a funny joke. My guess is that the person before her danced, which is why she was like, oh, I wish I could dance, but I, uh, but you guys wouldn't want to see that, implying that she's a bad dancer. And the crowd reacts that she got a good laugh out of it. Um, most likely that was created on the spot um, because you wouldn't just randomly say dance unless like something had just happened that was dance related. Um, so that sounds kind of cool. And then she went into exactly what she wants to talk about. She's going to go into her background and that'll probably frame the rest of the speech. I'm fascinated with how public speakers hook their audience in the beginning of the speech. This wasn't something super fancy. This wasn't trying to interact with the audience, ask a question. It was just very bluntly, this is what I'm going to talk about, and now getting into it. Which basically means I'm a professional people watcher. So this is what I do. I try to figure out how humans think and how we might be able to think better. And here's something I noticed a few years ago about how I seem to think. Here's a typical week in my life, which usually seems to revolve entirely around publishing papers. So here I am in the maximum of my artistic abilities as a stick figure, going along at baseline, and a paper gets accepted. I get this rush, this blip of happiness, and then I'm back to baseline by about lunchtime. <laughs> a few days later, a paper might get rejected, and that feels pretty awful and I wait for that blip to end, but somehow I just can't stop thinking about it. And here's the craziest part. Even if another paper gets accepted the next day, well, that's nice, but somehow I can't get that pesky rejection out of my head. So what is going on here? Why does a failure seem to stick in our minds so much longer than a success? Well, together with my colleague, Amber Boydston, in the political science department, I started thinking about this question, this question of do our minds get stuck in the negatives? We all know. Cool. So she had a pretty good visual aid to describe what her mind feels like in terms of her day-to-day -day week. And now that visual aid is going to springboard off into the 
main point she's going to be talking about, which is most likely her research that she's done and trying to answer the question by setting up the problem about human negative thinking and if we get stuck in that negative thinking and what we can do to get out of it. Intuitively, that there are different ways of thinking about things. The same glass, the saying goes, can be seen as half full or half empty. And there's a lot of research in the social sciences showing that depending on how you describe the glass to people as half full or half empty, it changes how they feel about it. So if you describe the glass as half full, this is called a gain frame because you're focusing on what's gained, then people like it. But if you describe the same glass as half empty, a loss frame, then people don't like it. But we wondered, what happens when you try to switch from thinking about it one way to thinking about it another way? Can people shift back and forth, or do they get stuck in one way of thinking about it? Does one of these labels, in other words, tend to stick more in the mind? Well, to investigate this question, we conducted a simple experiment. We told participants in our experiment about a new surgical procedure, and we randomly assigned them to one of two conditions. For participants in the first condition, the first group, we described the surgical procedure in terms of gains. We said it had a 70% success rate. And for participants in the second group, we described the procedure in terms of losses. We said it had a 30% failure rate. So it's the exact same procedure. We're just focusing people's attention on the part of the glass that's full or the part of the glass that's empty. Perhaps unsurprisingly, people like the procedure when it's described as having a 70% success rate, and they don't like it when it's described as having a 30% failure rate. But then we added a twist. We told participants in the first group, you know, you could think of this as a 30% failure rate. And now they don't like it anymore. They've changed their minds. And we told participants in the second group, you know, you could think of this as a 70% success rate. But unlike the first group, they stuck with their initial opinion. They seemed to be stuck in the initial loss frame that they saw at the beginning of the study. So quickly on this visual aid, I really like the simplification of this. It's a complex idea that she's talking about in terms of the research that she's done, but it's a very simple way to understand it, which is what a visual aid should be like. So if you're trying to create a visual aid for your public speech, try to think of it like this, not too many words, more images, and it correlates with exactly what you're saying in terms of you as the presenter, so that the visual aid is not the presentation, but the visual aid is simply adding value to you who are the presentation, who is the presentation. We conducted another experiment. This time, we told participants about the current governor of an important state who is running for re-election against his opponent. We again had two groups of participants, and we described the current governor's track record to them in one of two ways. We said that when the current governor took office, statewide budget cuts were expected to affect about 10,000 jobs. And then half the participants read that under the current governor's leadership, 40% of these jobs had been saved and they like the current governor. They think he's doing a great job. The rest of the participants read that under the current governor's leadership, 60% of these jobs had been lost, and they don't like the current governor. They think he's doing a terrible job. But then, once more, we added a twist. For participants in the first group, we reframed the information in terms of losses, and now they didn't like the current governor anymore. And for participants in the second group, we reframed the information in terms of gains, but just like in the first study, this didn't seem to matter. People in this group still didn't like the current governor. So notice what this means. Once the loss frame gets in there, it sticks. People can't go back to thinking about jobs saved once they've thought about jobs lost. 
So in both of these scenarios, actually, the current governor gets ousted in favor of his opponent. Well, at this point, we were getting curious. Why does this happen? Could it be that it's actually mentally harder for people to convert from losses to gains than it is for them to go from gains to losses? So we conducted a third study to test how easily people could convert from one frame to another. This time, we told participants, imagine there's been an outbreak of an unusual disease and 600 lives are at stake. And we asked participants in one group, if 100 lives are saved, how many will be lost? And we asked participants in the other group, if 100 lives are lost, how many will be saved? So everyone just has to calculate 600 minus 100 and come up with the answer of 500. But whereas people in one group have to convert from gains to losses in order to do that, people in the second group have to convert from losses to gains. We timed how long it took them to solve this simple math problem. And what we found was that when people had to convert from gains to losses, they could solve the problem quite quickly. It took them about seven seconds on average. But when they had to convert from losses to gains, well, now it took them far longer, almost 11 seconds. So this suggests that once we think about something as a loss, that way of thinking about it tends to stick in our heads and to resist our attempts to change it. What I take away from this research and from related research is that our view of the world has a fundamental tendency to tilt toward the negative. So these examples were pretty well communicated. I think the visual aid was good. I think the uh, presentation of like the correlation between uh, the groups that she's describing was very good. I thought it was also really good to show the distinction between the variables in one group or another So and the controls listed. Um, so overall, the articulation of the examples I thought were really good. Now it seems like we're going to get into the implication of that and what broader message that she has. It's pretty easy to go from good to bad, but far harder to shift from bad to good. We literally have to work harder to see the upside of things. And this matters, so think about the economy. Here's economic well-being from 2007 to 2010. And you can see it tanked, just like we all remember, and then by late 2010, it had recovered by most objective measures. But here's consumer confidence over the same time period. You can see it tanks right along with the economy, but then it seems to get stuck. Instead of rebounding with the economy itself, consumers seem to be psychologically stuck back there in the recession. So oddly then, it may take more effort to change our minds about how the economy is doing than to change the economy itself. On a more personal level, what this research means to me is that you have to work to see the upside. Literally, this takes work. This takes effort. And you can practice this. You can train your mind to do this better. There is research out of UC Davis showing that just writing for a few minutes each day about things that you're grateful for can dramatically boost your happiness and well-being and even your health. We can also rehearse good news and share it with others. We tend to think, right, that misery loves company, that venting will help get rid of our negative emotions, that we'll feel better if we just talk about how terrible our day was. And so we talk. And we talk, and we talk about the boss who's driving us crazy, and the friend who never called us back, and the meeting at work where every little thing that could go wrong did. But we forget to talk about the good stuff. And yet that's exactly where our minds need the most practice. 
So my husband, who has this disconcerting habit of listening to what I say other people should do and then pointing out that, technically speaking, I'm a person too, has, has taken to listening to me for about two minutes on days when I come home all grumpy and complaining about everything. And he listens and he says, okay, but what happened today that was good? And so I tell him about the student who came up to me after class with this really interesting, insightful question. And I tell him about the friend who emailed me out of the blue this morning just to say hello. And somewhere in the telling, I start to smile. And I start to think that maybe my day was pretty decent after all. I think we can also work in our communities to focus on the upside. We can be more aware that bad tends to stick. One mean comment can stick with somebody all day, all week even. And bad tends to propagate itself, right? Somebody snaps at you and you snap back and you snap at the next guy too. But what if the next time somebody snapped at you, you forgave them? What if the next time you had a really grumpy waitress, you left her an extra large tip? Our minds may be built to look for negative information and to hold on to it. But we can also retrain our minds if we put some effort into it and start to see that the glass may be a little more full than we initially thought. Thank you. Okay, that was Getting Stuck in the Negatives and How to Get Unstuck by Allison Ledgerwood. Um, key takeaway from this is the uh, explanation of examples. So I think like if you're able to do an experiment that has a lot of like uh, unique aspects to it and like good results from it that correlate with your message, the ability to communicate that is very, very important. I think the ending of it was very good as well because there was a larger explanation for what it means to work to see the upside and like a personal example that she can make relatable to the audience for how she's been able to relate to the upside with the example of just like talking about the brighter parts of her day. Um, so overall, I thought it was pretty good. I think the hand movement was good, body movement was fine. There was a good level of pacing, good level of pausing as well in between certain sentences so that the information that she was giving could sit with the audience. This speech could be classified more as an informative speech. Um, it's not really trying to persuade you to believe in anything. It's just trying to inform you of the research that was done and then letting you form your own interpretation about what it means to see the upside based on the information that was relayed. So overall, I like this speech. Let me know what you guys thought in your comments. Leave a speech you would like me to review and hopefully review it on this channel. Thank you guys for watching this episode of Speech Analysis and I'll see you in the next one.